Holy God, today we are gathered in your name. We are gathered first as a wilderness wandering people of God. And so we ask that like the people of God who left Egypt behind and trusted you in the wilderness, that you might erase from our memories those things that we need to let go of. Oh, Lord, teach us and change us so that we would not let the world influence us unduly, that we would not be shaped by godless, spiritless, human pride and depravity. It's a tall order, Lord, but we recognize through the Bible, through your Spirit's teaching, that most of what's wrong in the world is a matter of pride and possession. It is a matter of humanity that is unholy, trying to rule justly when there is only one true source of justice and holiness, and it's you. So we ask you, Lord, to help us to let go of the angry vitriol that outrages us as we watch and disagree and fear. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be changed by your Holy Spirit to be instruments of your grace and peace. Lord, help us to avoid pride and indignation. You embraced human pride and were created and, and were given over to those who treated you with the greatest indignity of all history and yet you em embraced that for the sake of the ones you love and so Lord for the sake of the ones we love help us to be more devoted to you than to politics to social circles help us to be more devoted to you than to the approval of co-workers and colleagues and friends and family members. Help us to lead by example. And yet not to do so in pride, but in humility, so that our example is not about us, but about what you're doing in us. Well, God, help us then to be the change that we can only do within ourselves and then somehow collectively and individually influence our culture to be vital to the real well-being and the real health of our community through our Christian witness. This continues to be our goal, Lord, even though you, the, I almost said you, but even though circumstances have changed, I'll let you decide who caused what, but, but Lord, circumstances have changed and you've asked us to keep our eyes facing heaven and to follow that cloud by day and fire by night. And so we'll move when you move. And we will worship you wherever your tabernacle is. And we will trust you. And we'll learn to love manna 
and old shoes that never wear out. We love you, Lord, and that's what we want to be most evident in us, we pray. Both as individuals and as a congregation of Christians gathered here at Shiloh. Help us, Lord, to embrace the wilderness, even as we deal with our own discomforts, our physical maladies, our emotional and spiritual upheaval, the concerns we have for one another. Lord, you have heard and seen the prayers that have been coming to us by the dozens throughout the last couple of weeks in, in our online forum. And I ask that you honor every prayer request, Lord, and unite us with those. Lord, help us to be a light to our community and help us to have the courage to be rescuers who will speed to the aid of those who are spiritually drowning and who are ready for new life in you. God, for everyone here, I pray special blessings and, and join with them in their prayers for the various things that they bring before you privately so that we are united as those who are gathered in your name so that you are with us. And because you're with us, it pleases us to say the words that you spoke first. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, time for some Bible study. And... We're going to be reading today from the Bible in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. So if you have your Bible or your app or whatever means you choose handy, go ahead and dial that up. It's chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. If you're a little unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, at least in your physical copy, it's going to be way back at the very end. <laughs> so those are always the easier ones to find. We've, we've really jumped over a lot of the middle, if you think about it, because we're talking about the Exodus and the people who have uh, left Egypt behind and wandered in the wilderness so they could be remade into a people of God. And to find that book in your Bible, you go clear over to the far end on the left. And to find the book we're going to use today, in addition is to go all the way over to the right. So it's kind of amazing because the truth is, is the things that are true in the beginning are true in the end. And that's the whole point. And that's why I want to begin the next phase of this series of messages, which will include the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Now in these letters, John is instructed by Jesus to report everything he sees and hears and share it with those seven churches. And then he says, write the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are yet to take place. So I'm going to throw a concept at you for a second. Because in order to really grasp what Jesus has said, by the way, from outside of space and time, because if you read the Revelation, the first chapter tells you that Jesus is having this conversation with John inside 
heaven's door. He's, John has been invited to step into the place that's beyond space and time for a moment so that he can see things that are things that are to come and presumably things that have already happened, but because outside of space and time, it all looks the same. Now, this is a tough concept, but given that concept, then imagine that you and I have read Revelation together back in 1855, right? Well, Jesus says in the book of Revelation that this book is special. And that this one, above all the others in the Bible, says, if you read it, you will be blessed. And he goes on to say, and don't change one word of what it says. So I'm going to argue for a minute that if you and I were reading this book in 1855 and reread this instruction from Jesus to John, he'd be saying, see what was, what is now, and what is yet to be. And if we read this in 2020, he's still saying, see what was, see what is now, and see what is to be, okay? In other words, this is a statement from outside space and time, so it's always true, which means that we're looking at seven churches that literally existed at the time when John wrote these words, but we're also looking at types of churches and types of Christians that always exist and will always exist even as we move into the future until Christ returns. Are you with me? To sum up what I just said, what I want you to hear is, is that this letter is about you. Or it could be about you. Or this one might not apply to you or this church, but it would definitely, we'd be found in the next letter. So one of these seven churches is going to be about us as a church, and it's going to be about you as a Christian. In reality, in my experience, is we find ourselves in all seven of the letters, both as a church and as individual Christians. So the message of the book of Revelation's seven letters is Jesus describing what makes for a good Christian and what areas of improvement need to occur in a Christian. So are you ready to receive your report card from Jesus? Because that's what these next seven letters and next seven Sundays are going to be about. And if you're wondering what this has to do with the Exodus and wilderness wandering, well, keep in mind that the people left behind a stagnant, comfortable way of thinking about themselves, about God, about everything in the created order, and they were forced to unlearn all of that because God systematically tore it all apart and then destroyed the source of all of that misinformation, took them into the wilderness and said, now if you're ready for the new program, you get to go to the promised land, but the new program says you have to unlearn the old ways and learn new ways. In other words, they were on a training course in the wilderness. And I'm going to argue that using Revelation's letters to the seven churches, our Lord Jesus' own report cards, are our way of being trained by our master while we wander in the wilderness. That sound like fun? Well, I hope it doesn't sound like fun, but it sounds exciting and interesting. So let's read Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7, Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, 
and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but I have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had first at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear and what the Spirit says to the hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, some of you are always excited when we read from Revelation and you want to do an in-depth Bible study of Revelation. Sorry, I'm not going to do that right now. However, there are a number of recordings and associated notes online right now in the archives on YouTube and, and the Facebook page in the Knowing God with Heart and Mind study group, which you can join on Facebook. And you'll see that we did that class. We started that class last spring, back in the early days of COVID, and that we did an in-depth study that answers some of the questions you might be asking, like what about the lampstands and the stars and all that? So if you wanna know more about that, it's online. And we're going to pick up. We did the seven churches, and then we took a summer break. And in uh, August or September, all that's up in the air right now, we will resume this study and continue a depth, in-depth look at the book of Revelation. So if you were looking for that, it's out there, but not today, not on Sunday morning. So when you think about forsaking your first love, which Jesus says is their principal error, what does that look like to you? Well, I'm a guy, and I just celebrated my 30th anniversary, so I'm going I'm to use an example that is common that I've heard of and seen, and, you know, most of us can relate to this. You know how when a man is pursuing a woman that he's crazy about, and he's just passionate, you know, and, and he's got all the time in the world for her. And we, we were at, at an antique store yesterday, and this, this girl's about 20 years old, and, and I swear, we were in there 30 minutes, and she never stopped talking once. She's telling her life story to this tall, good-looking fella who's probably about her age, and it's like nobody else is in the store. Okay, and, and I, I got in the car and I said, you know, that girl never stopped talking for 30 minutes. My ears hurt. And Bethany says, well, she's flirting. <laughs> and he's into her because he's asking her to tell more. And I thought, you know, that might be the only reason that I would, you know, encourage someone to talk constantly for 30 minutes to me. Laura's not like that. She never was. We were, we were totally perfect for each other because conversations sometimes don't take very long at all, but we're fine with that. But my point is, is when you're in love, you'll do anything to win the hand of the girl. Right, guys? 
When you're in love, you want this woman so bad. And then when they get married, I do their wedding, and they're crazy about each other, and they do their vows, and there's tears, and there's love, and it's wonderful. And, and then, like five years later, somebody comes to me and says, I never see him anymore. We have three kids now, and he's at work constantly, always at work. He says it's because he's trying to take care of the family, and I get it, but, you know, we'd like to have a little bit of his time. That's the picture I have in my mind, okay? I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but it's a pretty common scenario, isn't it? People get, you know, desperate to make sure they can provide for their family, and then the course of providing for the family divides their affection, because they said, well, I can provide more for my family if I work harder, longer hours, take extra classes or whatever, and achieve a higher level of, of uh, status in the company or whatever. And so, so we have this problem that happens where the crazy passionate love that caused the relationship in the first place is displaced by normal. And remember when we were talking at prayer time about how normal is basically the thing you're comfortable with. And so relationships have a way of deteriorating because other things become more important and somehow it starts out with them being justified in that we are trying to secure and support the consequences of a great relationship, which is children and homes and gardens and cars and things. We want to have quality time together, but in order to have a really great vacation, we need to make more money. So we're going to skip vacations for the next three years so we can have money for a really fantastic vacation. You know, and, and so this is what happens, and this is exactly what Jesus is saying. See, when you first came to me, you were crazy about me because you, you knew that everything you hoped for, everything you wanted, everything you dreamed of, you could have through me. Hear that? It's sort of selfish. See, because we love Jesus for what Jesus does for us. He saves us from sin that we can't save ourselves from. He invites us to live eternally, whether on this side of the grave or the other side of the grave, we have eternal hope. And he invites us to receive gifts of the Holy Spirit and so forth. But when he asks us to do the hard things, to put our self-interests behind in favor of serving him for the sake of that first love, it starts getting a little awkward. Because it requires sacrifice. So the first thing you realize in this letter to the Ephesian church is that they, they've become comfortable in their religious activity. They've become comfortable in their religious activity. It looks the same every week when they go to church. They greet the same people. They say the same prayers. People don't like change in church. Have you ever noticed that? Isn't that funny? But we always sing the doxology right here or whatever, and people get upset. And, and I'm not saying that I don't appreciate why that is important to them, but the fact is that the things that give us comfort can also enslave us like Egypt. 
Because we're so committed to maintaining our comfort that we would rather give a half-hearted participation in the life with Christ that leaves us with enough comfort to satisfy us. And so the church at Ephesus sounds like a church that's been around for a while. Now you're going to think I'm making, that I'm making this fit Shiloh on purpose, but, but the church at Ephesus has probably been about, around about as long as Shiloh's been around. So we're, what, we're cruising right around 40 years or so, give or take. I think it was like 83, 84, right, when this thing kind of started. So we're almost a 40-year-old church. And, and as churches in the Midwest go, this is a baby. And that's about how old the church at Ephesus was. And they've already gotten comfortable with their religion. And they're pretty rigid about protecting themselves from really outrageous beliefs. So these Nicolaitans that Jesus talks about. He says, you've done a good job of driving those Nicolaitans out, and I'm right there with you. Well, Nicolaitans were these people that, that uh, the one thing we know for sure is, is that they were really immoral. So they, they were members of the church, but they were party machines, you know. They were always drinking and gambling and running around with people other than their spouses and, you know, this kind of thing. And if anybody told them that that didn't seem like a very good way to represent Christ, you know, to live like that for six days a week and then come to church on Sunday and say, oh, how Jesus loves me and you. And, and, and so they called them out on it. And Jesus commends them for it. But you know what happens when you feel empowered because of righteous leadership, you know, where you say, look, we have boundaries around what we believe here and how we function as a church. Those boundaries are referred to as doctrine in religious terms. And we say that outside of those boundaries, living outside those boundaries is pretty much incompatible with living inside those boundaries. But within those boundaries, there's room to maneuver and we don't want people to feel overly judged or oppressed by our legalism. But this is what happens, like in Ephesus, when churches begin to enforce their boundaries too much. They, they, first it happens in a, you know, they're plugging a hole, so to speak, and, and they're saying, this is a bad place. This is leading to chaos in our church. This is letting Satan get in and stir up a lot of trouble in our church. Someone's going to have the courage and the faith in Christ to, to say, okay, enough is enough. This is outside our boundaries of doctrine and church tradition, let's say. But then what happens is, is that we can very easily get full of ourselves and proud and we start policing. And the next thing you know, somebody's saying, well, I saw you hanging out with the wrong people the other day. And someone's saying, somebody told me they caught you drinking a beer. And somebody will say, and, and all of a sudden we get real legalistic and we're, we're oppressing each other in the name of Jesus. And this is what Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus is, is you guys got to find some balance here. You guys find some balance. You were right to condemn the Nicolaitan heresy and you were right to send them packing. But at the same time, you guys have nothing to brag about. You, you're proud that you did that and you're proud of your religious activity. But where's the first love? Where's the passion? 
Do you hear Jesus saying that? He's like, it's like you guys are doing a lot of things right, but, but it doesn't feel like you do this out of love for me anymore. It sounds like you're doing this in my name. Does this hit close to home? This is what the seven letters of Revelation are all about. Jesus is saying, for all generations of Christians, so the Christian era starts basically when Jesus ascends to heaven and the Holy Spirit takes over, and the Christian era is what Jesus is writing to in those seven letters. He's saying, here's what's good, here's what's bad. So when we read these letters, we're going to see things about ourselves and about our church. And if you're wondering, you know, what we're trying to change for the sake of leaving behind Egypt and entering into the promise, the, the answer, I think, is found in how we read these letters. Because Jesus is saying, here are basically seven examples of church and Christian living. Some are out of balance, like Ephesus. Some, we're going to find out, please Jesus very much, and he has nothing negative to say about them. Some, he's very disappointed with, but all are the church. Do you hear that? See, the biggest mistake a lot of legalistic Ephesian-type Christians make is that they spend a lot of time condemning and judging a world that doesn't belong to the church. The Bible's written to the church. The Bible's written to God's people. Everything you read in there is written to God's people. Now, anybody can be part of God's people. Anybody can join the church. But understand that we spend a lot of time as Christians condemning people who aren't part of the body of Christ based on Christian standards, based on biblical standards. Now, how does that make sense? The first thing we have to do is accept that until they know what they don't know, we can't hold them to the standard that we would hold ourselves to. And if you think about what we were saying earlier in prayer time, the only person we can really change is ourselves. So by our example of humility and devotion to Christ, our willingness to courageously uphold those things that must be upheld for Christ's namesake, and yet our willingness to humbly let people wander within the boundaries and find their way, that's the letter to Ephesus in a nutshell. It's saying, good job holding up the boundaries, but don't have everybody huddled in the middle and telling everyone that if they're not huddled in the middle with you, they're not okay. See, there's room for people in the church who are babes in the faith, who don't know anything yet, but they've come. They join the family. And so you have the rest of their lives or your life to model and talk about the way to be a Christian. So the church at Ephesus has hope. Jesus says, look, if you guys will just balance, work this balance thing a little better, you'll be all right. I have one last thing to say about this. You're going to notice in all the letters about the church at Ephesus and about all the other churches that Jesus always ends with a promise. And one thing you're going to hear is, is Jesus is always saying, let him who has ears hear. I want you to think about, between now and next Sunday, what you watch and what you see. And I want you to think about it separately from what you hear. 
Okay? So I want you to think about what you hear, and I want you to think about what you watch. And when you come back to church next Sunday, and you listen to the next promise Jesus gives, think about what Jesus says. Let him who has ears hear. Then I want you to think about who controls the media in this country that is visual, and who controls the audio media in this country. And I want you to think about what you spend more time listening to and what you spend more time watching. You get where I'm going with this? The Bible is always telling us to, to mind our ears, to, to pay attention with our ears, but not to trust. Basically what I'm saying is, is the eyes will deceive you. That's the whole point. Jesus is telling you to let your ears guide your thinking. In other words... What, when you look at what's going on in our world, I want you to realize that there are decisions that are based on emotion. Like when Eve looks at the fruit on the forbidden tree and it looks good. So she defies God, who said to her ears, don't do it. Think about what you see and how it affects you and think about what you hear and how it affects you. And imagine that people in our country might right this minute be making a lot of decisions based on feelings rather than facts. Are you with me? This is a wilderness workshop type message, which means you get homework. And the goal is to be the best Christian you can be, you yourself. You're not trying to make anybody else better, just you. So mind what you see this week and how it makes you feel and mind what you hear this week and what it makes you do. Because if we do more based on facts than feelings, we probably find uh, much more balance, which is what Jesus has asked the church at Ephesus to do. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. And Lord, as I anticipate next week's services and the new things we're trying to do, I ask for your help in every conceivable way. For your name's sake, amen.